I always I always tell people I really don't need magnification here, but uh, uh, how many of you got to look at the devotional this morning? And you did it. Very good. Okay, let's let's uh, look at those questions real quickly and uh, get some answers. And uh, I could do like an Oprah Winfrey run out in the audience and get you and immortalize you on tape or just repeat it. So I don't know. You, you, know, you look tired this morning, so. Okay, Wednesday. I asked you to read uh, John. What was that? Sorry. Sorry. Uh oh. No, that was. I don't look like Oprah Winfrey. Now that might be a compliment, <laughs> or it might be an insult. I don't know. You're too pale. I'm too pale. That's that's true. But on the other hand, too, I'm too thin. But uh, <laughs> and I'm not the right sex. So three strikes. But other than that, there's a lot of resemblance. Okay. Well, we're off on a good note, right? Okay. Uh, I asked you to read John chapter 1, 35 through 42, Luke 5, 1 through 11, Luke 9, 28 through 36, and John 21, 1 through 23. They are, we'll go over these real quickly. These are incidences in the life of Peter, key incidences that kind of reveal his character. Now, we're going through the book of 1 Peter this week, Lord willing. And uh, we're taking just the first two verses, kind of think through who Peter is and who he's writing to to kind of get the flavor of the book uh, of First Peter. But uh, I thought it'd be good for us to kind of consider Peter. Okay, so here are the things I asked you to think about. Think about Peter's character. Describe his character. Two, how did God uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, how did Jesus handle Peter? And how does it strike you that God used Peter to write this book? And four, what hope does this give you? Okay, uh, let's, um, let's talk about that. Um, what, what about Peter's character? Okay, describe Peter. Who would like to describe Peter? Okay, wait a minute. I, I am going to do this. I'm going to take this mic off. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this multimedia business. I would say that Peter was uh, impetuous and passionate. Okay. Ooh, impetuous and passionate. We won't make you put your name on the tape. Okay. Uh, he uh, didn't think a lot before he acted, and he did whatever he did full bore. That would be a way. Anybody else like to describe his character? Okay, back to Dwight in the back here. Stubborn, overconfident, but also humble and repentant. Whoa, that's a, what a combination. Okay. Um, anybody else want to describe? Okay. The, the character of Peter, before we look at the passages. Huh. I, I don't need a mic. You don't, you don't need a mic. All these things that people say, I didn't glean for the particular verses that you gave us to read. Oh. We knew that from other times, okay. other parts of Scripture. Okay. So I wondered, are we supposed to only use the portion you gave us, or can we use our general knowledge of Peter? You can use the general knowledge of Peter. This is an open book exam. <laughs> okay, whatever to describe him. Okay, let's look at these incidences in Peter's life. Okay, let's look at these because I think these uh, are windows. Uh, there's lots of other passages too that we could look at. Okay, the first one is John, and this is a general. Doesn't give you a lot about his character, but uh, key key times in his life. Now remember, John John's different, and I'm preaching through the book of John as I get opportunity at Bayview, and it's really intriguing. John's different. You know, they call the other three the synoptics because they're alike. 
and John, everybody runs around trying to figure out why it's so different. You know, but John picks a whole bunch of different incidences in the life of Christ, some, some of the same, the feeding of the 5,000, etc. But he picks this to, to, he picks incidents in the life of Christ to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. And in the opening uh, chapter, we have an account where the apostles are starting to be called. Okay, in verse 35 we read, And again the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist. Uh, really, John the Baptizer. I always tell my Baptist friends that unless they get confused and think that you know, he was a Baptist. But okay, John the Baptizer was standing there with two of his disciples. Um, and he looked... That's not copyrighted. You can use that with your Baptist friends if you want to. Okay, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. A lot of these translated because it's to a Gentile audience, probably in Asia Minor, and he's got to translate the uh, Aramaic and Hebrew. So he says, uh, Rabbi, which is uh, translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you'll see. They came therefore and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. But one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. The next day, he purposed to go forth into Galilee. So here we have the calling of Peter. Now, I think it's interesting because the Lord uh, already, you go through this chapter, and already you have the preliminary indications of his, his deity. He knows things about people that no one else knows and no one could reveal. Uh, and he says to Peter, look, you're going to be the rock. And I'm going to use you as a representative with the apostles to establish the church. So the Lord calls him. Luke chapter 5, uh, a closer look at his character. Later on, after the Lord has done this, apparently, uh, we have an incident in, in the... This is one of my favorite in the life of Peter... Uh, remember John MacArthur Jr. calls him the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. Right? Because he's always putting his foot in his, in his mouth. Okay? Um, so here's, here's a chief incident. Uh, verses 1 through 11. Now it came about that while the multitude was pressing around him and listening to the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And of course, Simon said, yeah. Right? What's his response? Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing but at your bidding, I will let down the nets. I mean, what's this carpenter know about fishing? <laughs> you know, it's reading into the text, but I think it's a fair reading. You know, but since it's you, well, okay. 
Lord will do your bidding. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Now that's a lot of fish. Now, Simon Peter saw that. He fell down at Jesus' feet. And what did he say? Man, can we have a good business with you? I mean, you know, we'll nail it dead. We'll clean this lake out real quickly. And, and, you know, and that's why I think reading back into it, you know, the kind of, well, you know, what do you know about fishing? Because his response is one of what? Repentance. This guy is nailed. He falls down in the middle of the fish, in the middle of a sinking boat, and what does he do? He doesn't negotiate with the Lord. He says, depart from me from a sinful man, O Lord. He realizes his, his mouth is a foot-shaped mouth. He's told the Lord of glory. Now, this guy fishes for a living. He had no sonars or anything like that. But he knew, he knew his business. <clears throat> they had worked hard. They didn't catch anything. And he thinks it's ludicrous to even try. And the Lord proves that the Lord knows what He's the Lord of creation. And somehow, you know, forming in, in his heart and mind, Peter knows this. And as someone said passionately, he just drops down in the middle of the fish and he says, leave me alone, I'm a sinner. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. I mean, they were, they were just shocked. Yeah. So also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So you see the call to discipleship. You also see the call to the ministry. But you also begin to see Peter's character. Now let's look at uh, Luke 9. Now the reason all this is building the case. You know... Does it begin to dawn on you who writes the book of 1 Peter? Unless you're a, an absolute critic who has to run around. You know, uh, New Testament critics, liberals, uh, they're like the, uh, the guy that's uh, too, too uh, embarrassed to uh, beg, too weak to dig, so he has to stay a New Testament scholar because you know, he can't earn a living any other way. He doesn't believe anything. You know, he's on his way to hell, but he still needs to cling to the job. Uh, unless you're a critic, it's obvious that Peter the Apostle wrote the book of 1 Peter. And uh, this is the character of the man uh, that wrote the book, and I think, I think it really needs to dawn on you. It's maybe not all that profound, but you really need to register. It's this man that the Holy Spirit uses to write the book on persecution. I mean, beloved, that's grace upon grace. If John's a son of thunder, remember? You know, John and James, I mean, they're sons of thunder. They write the book on love, you know, the love of God. And here's the guy that writes the book on persecution who runs, you know, when he's skulking around the fire under Jesus. And then you have that painting, whether it's realistic or not, but the look of Jesus just nails him in the heart, you know, when he denies him. Luke 9, 28. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter. Now remember, Peter is the one who's just said, you're not going to go to the cross. 
You know, it makes the great confession. We didn't read that passage, but there's that passage, you know. You are the Christ, the Son of God. That's fantastic. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then what does Peter immediately do? No way you're going to the cross over my dead body. Get behind me, Satan. As somebody recently pointed out, Rich Gans, uh, Dr. Gans pointed out, preaching through First uh, Peter at our, our summer institute. It's one of the few times that somebody was called Satan in the Bible. But uh, there's Peter <clears throat> from glory to groveling very quickly. Uh, eight days after the incident of the confession at Caesarea Philippi, uh, after eight days, the, these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which uh, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, literally Exodus in the, in the uh, Greek, um, his death. Now Peter and his companions had been overwhelmed with sleep, but when they were fully awake and they saw his glory and the two men standing with him, and it came about as these were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, here's Peter again, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days of the things which they had seen. Okay, now here's Peter on the mountain again. <clears throat> and imagine, okay, it's a real incident. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ. This is coming attractions. You know, it's uh, the pre-glory. Uh, it's the glory of Christ that will have when He's ascended to the Father. And there He is glorified. And there's Moses and Elijah. Moses, the uh, giver of the law, and Elijah, the great representative of the prophets. And they're, and they're, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? Conversation, probably. Maybe they had good flannel graph as Hebrew kids, you know. It was Moses and Elijah. No, seriously, it was, the, it was the conversation as they're talking. And as Mo, Moses and Elijah go, what happens? A great cloud overshadows them. Okay, and this isn't just a high up. My family doesn't like heights. I found that out when we moved out west here. Never had anything like that back east, you know. But it's not just heights. This is the Shekinah glory of God. Now, in the midst of all this, Peter wakes up, and Peter, James, and John are doing what? What the apostles do so well? Sleep. Sleep that's right. <clears throat> They're in the middle of a prayer meeting, and they okay. They do it in the garden. It's just typical. Okay. So he wakes up, and Peter, of course, has to, has to say something, right? And what does he say? Oh, it's really good for us to be here. And then he gets worse. He says, we'll make three tabernacles. Now, he's not just saying little you know, dwelling places. That's where you worship. Okay? And then the Shekinah glory comes, and he gets nailed. You know, God, the Father, in a kind way, says, shut up and listen to the Son. Okay, and uh, 
you know, here's Peter, and, and you know, you know what you're like when you wake up. Sometimes you say things that you ought not to say. In fact, some of you are like that for 10, 12 hours after you wake up. <laughs> and coffee doesn't even help, okay? Uh, there's a time to stay silent. And this is the time, and Peter, you know, and the Father straightens him out. So again, you see the character of Peter. Impetuous and passionate. Maybe that's a really good way of, of really capturing it. He says something before he thinks. And there he is. Okay, one more incident. We could read others. There's the incident with Paul after the resurrection. Remember when Peter is fine until the Judaizers come. You know, Peter, I think Peter's a lot like David. Whatever he does, he does full bore for the Lord, a man after God's own heart. But that certainly doesn't keep him from sinning. Most, perhaps the most poignant incident in Peter's life, at least for me, that really captures everything in Peter's character and the Lord's work with him is John 21. And this almost sums it up in terms of the Lord's restoration of him after he sins. Remember, he denies the Lord three times. He said, I won't. The other guys will blow it. Not me. I will not deny you. When everyone else is gone, I will be there. And you know what the Lord says? Oh, really, Peter? I want to tell you something. I, I'm praying for you. Because what you don't know is that Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Just like the book of Job. You don't know what's going on, Peter. And you don't know what's at stake. And you don't know how big it is. And you don't know how tough it is. And after you're restored then I want you to serve your brethren. Nah, Peter, not me, not me. And of course, a lot of, all the others ran, and Peter, he was bold, right? He went right in after John. you know. And, but then when the pressure got on, oh, you must be one of them. Not me. I can tell by your accent. You're from Galilee. And the little girl, and finally he starts cursing, because he figures, you know, cursing. And he denies the Lord three times. So here we have the Restoration. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. They were together, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Canaan of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, Well, uh, we will also come with you. So they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said, therefore, to them, Children, you don't have any fish, do you? No. Okay, He said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat. Now, it can't be that big a boat. Okay? (laughs) That, you know, the right side and left side. And, uh, you know, I mean, isn't the Lord masterful? Not only doing this again, but remember Peter. Oh Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. So the Lord starts warming him up. Warming him up for the confrontation. Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. They cast therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Ding. Does that sound familiar? Okay. The disciple therefore whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. It's the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, 
He put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Didn't even wait to get to land. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land. But about 100 yards away, dragged the net full of fish. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and the fish placed on it and bread. And he said, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up, drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. I've never studied out with the significance, but it's probably a very large number of large fish, okay? Pretty exact. 153, probably they could have weighed the kilos too and told you, okay? They, they, this is eyewitness account. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I, I like you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I really like you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, <clears throat> Simon, Son of John, do you really like me? You know, two different words are used, and some some uh, expositors say, "Well, there's really no distinction. You shouldn't make a big deal about it." I don't I don't agree with that. Um, and he said to him, "Lord, you know all things. You know that I like you. I really care for you." Jesus said to him, "Tend my sheep." Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger. You used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Now here's the, here's the real climax for me. In the incident, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, <clears throat> who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying therefore went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Now look at the, the parts of this, uh, this incident. <clears throat> Here's uh, Peter, you know, this impetuous, uh, passionate man who does love the Lord, but now realizes that his talk is bigger you know, uh, than his action. And the Lord three times confronts him. And really, he, he was really, I think this is biblical counseling par excellence. This is, this is nuthetically confronting him. Do you love me more than 
those guys than these? Do you really, do you really love me with all that intensity that you said that you really, really would and you wouldn't buckle under pressure? Lord, you know I deeply care for you. And interesting, each time, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Okay, what does he do? He basically tells them, get back to work. Don't, don't go fishing. You go take care of the sheep. Three times he denies them. Three times he confronts them. And Peter, I would think by now, is a broken man, right? I think in some ways he is. And he says to him, you're going to be martyred. When you're younger, you know, with all this pride and everything, you'd go wherever you want. And you would do what you want. But you know what's going to happen? When you get older, they're going to lead you around where you don't want to go and you're going to die. And of course, church history says, whether it's accurate or not, that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome because he said he wasn't worthy to die like his Savior. Learns his lesson, doesn't he? Immediately turns around and goes, what about him? Oh, the Lord's patience. Do you know what I want to do with Peter? I want to take him and slam dunk him so fast. I mean, here he's just going through this, this bringing back and God restores him and says, you're still going to lead and feed the sheep and you're going to be mine. And he turns around and he puts his foot in his mouth again. Well, what about John? Is he going to get wasted like me? Is he going to get nailed? You know, is he going to get martyred? Peter, what's it your business if I want him to live until I return again? You just go do what I told you to do. I think the Lord was firm, but he's certainly merciful. I, I wouldn't have been. I would have been right in Peter's face. You know, it's it's none of your business. See, and John goes, you know, I'm the guy, so I know what the Lord said. He didn't say I was going to last forever. What he said was, if that was my will, what is it to you? Okay, now, let's come back to the main point, or I should remind myself of that. It's Peter. Now, turn over to 1 Peter. Okay. So when you read the first word in this book, Peter... An apostle of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. It's this guy. <clears throat> and, you know, again, uh, the Lord has a sense of humor. Of course, it's a scary sense of humor. If you really read through the Scripture, when God's laughing, that's not too good. <laughs> you know, for the person that He's laughing at. You know, Psalm 2. I mean, and by and large, the Lord's humor is sarcastic humor toward his enemies. Now, there's the tongue-in-cheek humor in the, in the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount where he says, you know, each day has enough trouble, so let it worry about itself. No, God uses that. And by the way, I have to remind my wife of this, God does use puns in the Scripture. You know, some of people don't think puns are legitimate, but there are. And of course, mine aren't inspired by God. I realize that. <laughs> But puns are used in the Scripture, okay? So humor is there. But it seems to me divine irony that this is the man who writes the book on how to suffer in a godly way. Don't you see it? 
I mean, if you, get, if you get nothing else out of this week, you ought to get that and you ought to go back weeping for joy. Because if God can use Peter to write the book on how to suffer in a godly way and come out looking like Jesus Christ instead of a guy with his foot in his mouth, then you ought to be encouraged. You ought to really be encouraged. If God would do that with Peter, that doesn't mean he's going to use you to to write, you know, Scripture, Scripture's closed. It may not mean he's going to use you in his, in his, his complete in a big way. But I really believe Peter came to live this out. Do you understand? He died. He was martyred. And, he, and, and the fact that God would use him later on to write this book, just, just has never, I've never gotten over that fact that Peter is the one that writes the book on suffering. He's the one that writes the book on suffering. So how does that strike you? I, I would hope. And that was the whole thing in the little devotional this morning. Get you to think this through. Look at Peter's life. Think about what kind of guy he was like and how he conducted his life. And, uh, and I'll tell you, this really gives me tremendous hope. Because I figure by time, and I'll just tell you a personal incident. When I first went into the pastorate, many of not many, but a lot of you know Lou Grotenhouse. You know, and um, you know, Lou and I had a very unique relationship. Lou was started the church and he was there 40 years and everybody said, please, Lou, get out of town. You know, give the next guy a real chance. You know? um, and we had a very good relationship. Lou was not the kind of guy that would ever really tell you what to do or to try to take over. A very gracious, godly man. And I was talking with him one day. We would pray together regularly and, and you know, I have a, I'm a very weird person. Most of you know that. Rollin knows that. I, I did my first internship back in 69 with him in Wilmington. My wife really knows because she's married to me. <laughs> Just ask my kids. They'll be glad to tell you how strange I am. You know, and, and sometimes I get thinking about things that nobody else thinks about. Now, and this may not be true in this case, but there was a time there where, where it just started occurring to me. And it was a real strange thing. What, what if somebody really arrests me for preaching the gospel? Now, you know, New Jersey's tough, but you know, nobody's gotten arrested yet that I know of for preaching in New Jersey, okay? Well, maybe McIntyre, but that was a different story, right? Uh, um, the, 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 whole, you know, the whole issue all of a sudden started dawning on me. Well, what if, what if somebody really arrests me and puts me up against the wall, you know, and points a gun at my head and says, you know, deny the Lord or die. And I started thinking, well, what, what would I do? How do I know that I would really be faithful to the Lord? And as, as gracious as Lou was, he basically said, you know, we were talking, he said it in a kind way, but he said, but that's dumb. He really did. He didn't use those words. He said, that's dumb. He says, God won't give you dying grace till you need it. That was real interesting, you know. The whole thing of pressure and how you respond to pressure, because I don't respond real well. Still don't. Uh, you know, some people, you know, I don't know how you respond, but I typically get angry under pressure. Okay? And then later on, after I see what I've done, then self-pity sets in. You see? And really, they're flip sides of the same coin, which is a self-centered reaction to the situation instead of responding the way God wants you to. 
See, if I, if I respond to a situation, that's really going to be part of the theme of this whole book. If I respond to the situation as God's servant for the sake of conscience of God, knowing that God is there, and I can have the, the, the sense that God, real sense that God is there, and He is looking at me and He wants me to respond like Christ, I'll respond differently. And uh, I started worrying about something that at that point in my life was a silly thing to, to think about because God wasn't asking me to die. And as Lou said, He wouldn't give me the grace to do what I didn't need to do. He would give me the grace when I would need it. And that's always made a lot of sense to me. But there is the fact, uh, and I want us to think all through the week, how do you work under pressure? How do you respond to pressure because <clears throat> the extracted you see I, I, that that it really is it when you turn up the heat and God turns up the heat and the, and the pressure comes on you and you get compacted by people and circumstances you know they'll squeeze out all the extraneous stuff and the real essence of you will come out under pressure and, and I often don't like what I see when I respond under pressure. But the truth of the matter is, the depth of your Christ-likeness will be exposed in suffering and pressure. No, no two ways about it. And the way you handle that will be an indication of really your basic character and where you need to grow. And that's what the book really is saying. Peter, let's read those two verses because that's our text I have a few more minutes to look at it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Asia Minor, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Okay, so there's the opening, uh, the opening greetings. Okay. So Peter is called to be an apostle. Uh, you know what apostle is? A sent one, one who goes to do the task as a commissioned person. Uh, the whole identity of Peter is wrapped up in his calling to do God's work, and that's how you want to see yourself. Now, some of you are ordained to office, some of you are not. But your identity should be wrapped up in your calling as a believer in Christ. So if you look at your outline, you want to take notes, you can jot things down. Peter as an apostle, and we've seen his character. Okay? Peter writes, though, to these outsiders. These are probably, it's a mixture of Jew and Gentile. People argue back and forth. Is the Jew or Gentile? Who's this written to? Probably a large portion of these are actual literal Jews who have left you know, the Palestinian area under persecution. And Peter is writing to them. But it's, it's a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. And I don't think it's a, an exclusive readership. They're literal aliens and strangers. They're living in a foreign culture. Now some of you have, some of you have done that, right? Who, who grew up in a different country, a different land, right? You, you're in different. I did. I grew up in South Philadelphia, <laughs> and uh, the rest of the culture is very, very different. Okay, in the world. Okay, 
you, you know, when you live in a different culture, it's really interesting. And, and of course, the break point, right, is when you begin to think in the other language. You know, you begin to be able to somehow to adjust. But these people, you know, were, were foreign born. They did probably were bilingual. They spoke Greek. But, but they're, they're, they're really not settled. See, that's an important thing for you to understand. And uh, we as Reformed people, I think, have blessings that, that many others don't. We know that God is concerned about all of life, and we ought to be involved in all sorts of life. But uh, this world really isn't our home as it is now. And, and people really need to remember that. Aliens and strangers, the whole book is about being powerless in the sense of being in a situation where you're not the top dog, where you're not the person with power, where you don't have the clout. You know, you're a stranger, you're an alien, you may not even have the right to vote. Okay? That's the kind of people that Peter is writing to. Okay, They're not part of the structure and they don't have it. Um, these people that they live among, most of them don't even care about Jesus, let alone love Him. Uh, these are, uh, they're like the Jews in the wilderness, really. And uh, I think many Reformed people <clears throat> have gotten too comfortable with the world. Okay? And, and the answer is not to become separatists in the sense of running off into a little pocket and to <clears throat> protect yourself out in some monastery. The, the church has always fought that. You know, half the church looks at the church that's becoming worldly and, and being engaged in ungodliness, and they go, oh, that's terrible. And so they run off into their, their little ghetto. It doesn't work. You know why? Because the sin follows you. And whatever you bring into the ghetto is a sinner. And so here we have people who are, are really uh, travelers through the world. That's the people that he's writing to. Now look at the interesting progression here, how he describes it. Uh, okay, uh, who are chosen. We know that. We're the chosen frozen, right? No, okay. We are a little cold today here, okay. But we're chosen, okay. We know we believe in election. Uh, why? Here you got the Trinitarian nature of the salvation, very clearly. It's the foreknowledge of God the Father, and that's not just a, a movie view. You know, you've probably studied that before and you can look in the commentaries. Foreknowledge means for love. Okay? It's not, it's not based on just predication of simply knowing what's going to happen. Okay? We are what? Chosen what? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Look at the interesting way. Peter always writes things. I have to confess this. I'm not trying to denigrate here. But he always writes things in a strange way. He gets them in strange orders and puts it differently than the other guys. You would expect the Son next, but He puts the Spirit. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and by what? The sanctifying work of the Spirit. Can't be a Christian unless the Holy Spirit picks you up and separates you. The Holy Spirit is the one that separates you from sin and separates you from other things. And apart from God the Father picking you, and apart from the Holy Spirit grabbing you, no salvation. And why does the Holy Spirit grab you and separate you? What? 
that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. If I were right, I'd probably put the other order the other way, but he's talking about, okay, what the Holy Spirit sets you apart for is what? To obey God and to be cleansed through the blood of the Lamb. So there you have it. Okay, the Father picks you. The Holy Spirit enables you and separates you to obedience and cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now there's a real description of Christians. right? A little mini description of what God has done to us and done for us and through us. Okay, so that's who Paul, uh, Peter is writing about. Okay, Now, that, why do I call this the Apostle of Victorious Failures? Okay, why? Because of Peter's character. Right? And what are you, if anything, if you're victorious through Christ, it's all His grace. You know, we ought to dance out of here this morning. We, we ought to be rejoicing. People oughtn't be running to charismatics to get some joy. You know, we ought to look into the heart of the triune God and go, this is unbelievable. You know, I always always say this, that a proud Calvinist is a contradiction in terms. Isn't it? Think about it. Think about who should be the most humble people on earth. And you will, it's rare, but you will run into Arminians and others that are humble, humble by the grace of God. Okay? And what are we oftentimes? We're in their face. You dumb Arminian, can't you get it straight? Don't you understand? Just think about it. The contradiction of people who come to the Reformed faith is wonderful, that they're excited about it. But what do they do? I've seen it so many times. They get their Arminian friends in the corners and start beating them up. You dumb idiot, can't you... Can't you figure it out? It says right there in Ephesians were chosen before the foundation of the world. What's with you? Can't you see this? Yo, where'd you see it if it wasn't through God's grace? So the proud Calvinist is a contradiction in terms. And a glum Calvinist is a contradiction in terms. You understand? The fact that we, a glum, a glum, glum, <laughs> dur, dur for some of you, okay? With that hard uh, kind of, you know, life is tough and, and it's horrible. Now, where's, where is the passion? Where is the joy? Where is it? Do, do, you, do you know how bad I am? That's why I got picked. (laughs) God picks the worst. He doesn't pick the best because He won't share His glory with anybody. Now look at me and go, are you kidding? No, that's the joy of the Gospel. We have been picked by the triune God. We've been set apart. We've been washed in the blood and we ought to tingle from the top of our heads to the bottom of our toes with amazing joy that God has done that for us. And yet, you know, what do people what do people know the OP for? Now, there's nothing wrong with the OP in terms of the purity of doctrine, right? Just think about that. 
If you say OP to anybody, whether they're PCA, CR, anything, what, oh, <clears throat> they're the ones that dot the I's and cross the T's, right? Now, unbeknownst to us, there are groups that are even more strict than us, but, I mean, that's what we're known for. I have never in, any, heard anybody accuse the OP. The OP! Why, those are the joyous people that pray all the time! Yeah, and people ought to be around us and we ought to be kicking them behind the knee and get down. We're going to get down on our knees and thank God. Thank God that we have been chosen apart from anything in us. Okay? And here's Peter, the apostle okay, for victorious victims. Okay? Because we have been victims of our own sin the sin of others and Satan, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And God's delivered us. That's the point. Well, let's wrap this up, give you an extra long break, okay? Because it's always easier to talk for an hour than it is to listen. Three, three key ideas, okay? Like I said, Peter ought to give you hope. That God would take Peter... This guy that's always putting his foot in his mouth, that even Paul has to stand up and go, Peter, Peter, had to rebuke him publicly in front of everybody. Can you imagine coming to camp and somebody nailing you know, the speaker? Hey, look, you're sinning. I saw you this morning at breakfast. You wouldn't sit with those guys. You were, you'd be willing to sit with them last night, but when all the guys came from 7401... Oh, that's how old I am. It's not 7401 anymore. It's wherever it's at in Horsham anymore. You know, When the guys came out, you wouldn't... Paul nails Peter publicly. What a tremendous encouragement to me as a sinful father, husband, and pastor that God can continue to use people that are imperfect. Now, no excuse for staying imperfect. But, you know, this whole book ought to encourage you. So, one. Two, another thing that you're going to find in the book, I think, that's really exciting, is that there's a lot of practical help. Well, Peter just doesn't say rejoice and doesn't tell you how. He doesn't tell you, you know, he tells you how to get through persecution. He gives you some real practical direction. So, you know, you ought to be real excited and say, boy, I, I don't do real well under pressure. Can I ever change? Yes. You can change because Peter can change. And two, you're going to be given specific instructions on how to do it. And then lastly, it comes down to this. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. It's God's grace that's going to accomplish this. Notice that Peter doesn't give a 12-step methodology. Okay? He doesn't tell you to organize yourself into self-help groups and to encourage yourself. Okay? It's just the regular old stuff that the church does that will get the job done. And I am astounded, and I'll close with this, um, of, of how people that look at me, just because I have a degree or something, there, there's even in the OP that tendency toward this professional mentality. Oh, you're the professional counselor. Oh, you're the psychologist. Oh, you're this. Okay? As opposed to saying, God has given 
the generic method that anybody and everyone needs through all the ages until he returns again to get the job done. And if you would only think about this, beloved, the Bible is sufficient. What did the church do for 1,900 years until psychologists came along? What does the rest of the church in the world... You know, talk to the Koreans at seminary. You know, talk to the Africans and, and talk about psychologists. You know, in, in most of the world today, you know who does the counseling? Whether you like it or not, you get free counseling from the elders. Yeah? The family and the clan elders come over and they tell you how to run your life. Okay? And you don't just pass them off. <clears throat> the world is very different than professional America. And I want to say this again. Everything new is not good. Okay? Everything that modern isn't great. And I praise God for all the progress that we make. <clears throat> you know, in, in medicine, etc., etc. But, you know, uh, I think most of our physicians will, will admit that we haven't come that far from leeches. Remember back in colonial times when they used to put leeches on people and think that that would, would help? Well, there's still an awful lot of leeches in modern America, okay? And uh, I think we need to really have the confidence that this gospel will make us full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that as we break and come back again and begin to consider the rest of this first chapter, you'll begin to write this word on our, our hearts. We'll begin to think like this. We'll begin to think like biblical Christians. We'll think like Peter began to think. And that, Lord God, this will become so part of our life that we will think and respond differently as we live in a world that tries to press us into its mold and tell us that there is no hope and that we cannot live a godly life, and we cannot live a joyous life. Lord, the pride that often clings to us as your people is, is, is ugly. Cleanse us of that, and may we realize again, that, Father, it's only because you chose us. It's only because you, Holy Spirit, have set us apart uh, for the cleansing of the blood of Christ and for the power of obedience. And in the, that power, even though we live as aliens in a hostile world, we will, by your grace, make it to glory, and we can even make it with distinction. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Okay, uh, uh, Alan, you'll call them back in when you deem proper.